Hello and welcome to this episode of Helix and Gene podcast, um, wellness podcast, I should say. Today I have two of my dear friends in one show, uh, Dr. Gary Gesselter, our very own and our very own mayor of Seacliff, Mr. Uh, Edward Lieberman, Mayor Ed, Dr. Gesselter, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sam. Thanks for having us. Uh, it's a unique opportunity in an uh, unprecedented time. Sure yeah, thanks is. for the invitation, Sam. I always enjoy talking with you. Well, you guys are two guys that I talk to on an almost daily basis, uh, if in a regular time and even during this time. Um, and, you know, what, what kind of uh, sparked this, this whole thing was obviously the situation that we're going through as a society with this COVID-19 and, you know, being in the epicenter of it in New York, where it seems to be like the spot for all the obvious reasons. Um, you guys both have been dealing with this situation in the front lines from two different avenues. And I really wanted to dive into some of the things that you guys have seen. Um, Gary, if we can start from a medical standpoint, you know, you are obviously a physician. You're seeing this at the hospital in the front lines. Can you just give us a little bit about what the state was when it first started and what you saw, um, where it is today or a week ago, where we're looking at the height level of this thing, and kind of a little bit about where you see this thing moving forward. And, and so if you can just chime in for me there. Uh, sure, Sam. Um, the, the obvious thing was that we never saw it coming, right? And we should have. Uh, we, we kind of sensed uh, what the infectivity of uh, the, uh, the SARS-CoV-2 uh, virus was, uh, what the dangers were, and that was typically in the asymptomatic carriers or people who were infected but preclinical, and their ability to spread it. We knew that it was a droplet spread, it was not an aerosol spread, so it did not have the contagiousness uh, um, of measles and mumps. Um, so there were certain things that we knew uh, as um, from a population health point of view that needed to be done to prevent this from happening. So, you know, I've been in the middle of both the physician medical piece of this as well as the population health piece, and we'll get into that later with the mayor. But, but from a clinical point of view, we knew that the incubation period was between three and 14 days. Um, we knew that the majority of people who got it would have some mild flu-like illness characterized by fever, a dry cough, muscle aches and pains, uh, and then escalating. The shortness of breath was a sign of, of compromised lung function. And, and that, was, that was when you know, trouble would start. So, so we knew kind of the, the pyramidal uh, shape of this thing. The majority was going to be mild. Some people were going to need to be admitted, but would, would not need to be in an ICU. And by far the small minority, the smallest minority would need to be in ICUs. And then dialing it back to what we knew about the, the um, incubation period and the number of people exposed prior to uh, this, the self-quarantining and, and what I call healthy distancing. I hate the word social distancing because it's wrong, that. but healthy distancing, <clears throat> um, 
we would then be able to predict when we would see the peak cases and what the, the consequence of what we did as a community would have on the load it would bring to the, to the healthcare system. So here's the, the irony, right? I'm a cancer surgeon and they shut down all elective surgery. Uh, it, was, it was initially shut down by the governor uh, up until April 24th. And now it is extended at least until May 1st, where every patient with cancer or any patient who did not need an emergency operation would have to be discussed at a scheduling committee comprising of surgeons, anesthesiologists, and nurse management to decide which cases could, could go on. And the reason for that was more than anything to preserve PPEs so that the frontline workers could do their job in fighting the pulmonary disease, right? So as a surgeon, my workload went down significantly and my team have repurposed themselves uh, in whichever way the hospital needs. Um, and we, we call it operating at the top of our license, meaning that if you're a surgeon and you cannot operate, you can work as a doctor in an ICU if you're not a worker ventilator. And so one of my partners this weekend was rounding on COVID patients in PPEs as a surgeon trying to help the pulmonologists and the critical care doctors to give them some respite. So, so a lot has changed in how we deliver care. Um, the, the peak appeared to be this past weekend. So we saw an enormous number of patients from a statistical point of view. Our hospital at its peak had 85% positive COVID patients, which meant that only 15% of our patients were admitted to the hospital with a diagnosis other than viral pneumonia. So is that, 80, so is that 85% above capacity or, well, I don't understand what, what you mean by that. So because if they're 15% were the regular patients that come to the hospital on a normal basis, right? And then there was an 85% of new COVID patients. I mean, how, how, what, where is that middle ground where you guys were like, oh my God. <laughs> Sorry, let me, let me redefine it, right? So a hospital bed capacity dictates how many beds the state provides us in our CO, a certificate of occupancy. Got it. And our bed capacity is around 380 beds. It's a specialty hospital that treats ca uh, cardiac patients, cancer patients, and ironically, our hospital does the most number of joint replacement operations on Long Island. Suddenly, you're not allowed to do any of those elective operations. So uh, okay. that enormous number of patients Thanks that for clearing come that in up. as right. elective <laughs> surgical patients, open heart operations, catheterizations <clears throat> with elective heart surgery, uh, all of those patients are now not coming in, allowing capacity. So we had two things. We had, we had a reconfiguration of the number of, of the type of patients that we were allowed to admit. And all of a sudden, all of the patients we were admitting were coming in from the emergency department. That usually represents 10% or 15% of our admissions, the rest being elective. Now all of those patients are coming from the emergency de department. And, and we then had the second phase, which was based upon the curve expectation, we created what was called a surge capacity or a surge capacity plan. And that was converting things like we have an endoscopy unit in the hospital where people come in to have gastroscopies and colonoscopies and there's a waiting area for those patients. Those were all converted to potential ICU beds with ventilators. So we reconfigured and redesigned the entire hospital. In addition to that, we have- And how long? Um, from the beginning, from the moment we knew that we were 
go how long was this how long did that 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 what you just explained take for you guys to do i want to see the efficiency we flipped a switch and in 24 hours we wow. canceled we canceled <clears throat> all elective surgery, which meant that we went down our, our schedules and started calling patients saying i'm sorry your surgery is canceled now i had conversation with people who got colon cancer esophageal cancer pancreas cancer and they're asking me well when am i going to get my surgery done just imagine you're a patient with breast cancer, colon right. cancer, pancreas cancer, any of those things, and you're expecting this to be out as soon as possible. Now you're waiting in the wings with an indefined timeline as to when we're going to be able to get you into the hospital. Very tricky. Very tricky. Wow. Wow. Okay. So there, there, there is, before I get to you, Ed, there is a couple of questions I have within this thing, right? I mean, this, so just by hearing what you're saying, I can look and understand the trickle effect in just that little spot of the hospital that you guys had to go through and all the different people that were affected by it, right? From a hospital standpoint, when you change your infrastructure like that, all those elected surgeries go back. You explained obviously a little bit about the people's mindsets, right? But where does the hospital be able to afford all of a sudden not having all of this elected surgery and all of these things while keeping all of these people and doctors and nurses on board to be able to staff them to be able to handle this at such a high pace i mean you know there's there is all these different there is the humanitarian there's the financial effect there is the I, I, I mean, and, and this really, I love how you explained every detail of what you guys did in each room because a lot of people just watch the news or are listening. They don't really understand the magnitude and the speed because the, the key critical element to this thing that, in my opinion, that I've noticed is speed, the rate in which this thing just takes over, right? So you have to attack it back with speed. So in, in the way that you guys were able to manage all of this, I mean, these are incredible effects from every single angle. How does a hospital recover from something like this um, afterwards? And, and, and where do you see that? Well, I mean, there are many questions in that, in that question. So we are a relatively small specialty community hospital in an affluent area, right? Right. Um, we will survive. We have a good credit score. We are digging deep and a lot of sacrifices are being made. Uh, the presumption is that when we can go back to our normal patient configuration, all those poor patients waiting in the wings are suddenly going to surge. So we're going to have a surge in the opposite direction. And that is that all those patients are now going to want their operation done immediately. The problem with this whole thing is that we're in uncharted territory because we do not know what the tail of this pandemic is going to look like. Right. So a lot of people believe that this is a, 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 an inverted V spike. It's going to climb rapidly and it's going to drop rapidly. The reality is it's going to climb rapidly and it's going to decay very slowly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we are trying to model what's going to happen with that. And I can tell you that listening to the politicians with respect, uh, listening to the governor and listening to the advice that they took from Columbia, from McKinsey, from all of these consultants, uh, they're modeling was based upon unprecedented information and most of the modeling was incorrect. And we'll talk about the, when we get to it, we'll hmm. talk about the responsibility that the community took uh, that was expected of each and every one of us. And this is gonna be a success based upon how we as a community listen. 
as a physician and healthcare providers, we were just responding to, to very bad information, to very bad uh, advice being given by people who were at the time influential. And, and a lot of people died because of that. And, and we saw we were, what was prescient to us was not China. What was prescient to us was what happened in Europe, particularly in Italy and Spain, that was derived from information that was not really released from China and hit them like a ton of bricks. I mean, Italy, Northern Italy, Bergamo and Milan took the biggest sucker punch because they didn't anticipate what was gonna happen with this tourist migration and didn't get on top of it. And for every hour you let people come right. in and out of your borders, you're infecting at least three people. So that R0, what the Brits call R0, where one infected person infects X number of people, we thought it was between, between two and four. It was around three. You think about that every hour, that what, that, what, what not doing the right thing from a policy point of view has impact on. We were, in this, we, were, we were fighting the fight after the fact. And that therein, I believe, lies the lesson. Wow. Wow. That's uh, well said, man. And, uh, you know, I... <laughs> It's, it's a really, really great explanation, Gary, and, and that you just shed a lot of light for me and I'm sure a lot of listeners as to what that's like from, you know, your point of view and what you've seen there and, and how it relates, you know, right from the start. Now, that being said, you know, Ed, I'm going to kind of turn this over to you for a minute and kind of, you know, ask you the same question, you know, from a... Yeah, and we talked about policies and, and, and Gary talked about some of the politics and things of that sort. Can you, get, can you give us your take on what took place, how you responded as a mayor? You know, and, and, and one of the things that I just want to jump in on the comparisons is, you know, Gary's hospital is very much like Seacliff in that, you know, it is a small put together affluent community and, and, and the hospital is the same way. So in, in its approach and recovery, I want to see where we are from that standpoint as well. Uh, well, first, let me just say this, you know, having heard the doctor give his uh, um, point of view and what he's been going through and what the staff has been going through and the patients, both COVID and, and non-COVID and, and the things that they have to deal with, um, I just want to, you know, give them a, a real shout out because it's a, a remarkable a part of our history and uh, within the medical field and uh, uh, taking care of patients and those people that can't have those, whether you want to call them elective or very serious type of operations because they have cancer or what have you, it, it's, uh, it's a situation that really uh, cries out for uh, sympathy and, and empathy to them. Uh, as far as uh, our situation in Seacliff, let me just say this. You know, Sam, I wear two hats. I'm also a criminal defense attorney. Um, uh, and uh, personally, I saw in the courts, the last time I was in court was March 11th and March 12th, uh, which was uh, a Wednesday and a Thursday. And of course, um, the staff there was very uh, taking all precautions and what have you. And as I said to somebody, I said, when the courts closed down, then you know this is going to be taken seriously. And of course, of course, <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll close down, I think, the next day or so. Um, but from my personal point of view, um, what happened then on March 13th, uh, the county executive, Laura Curran, called me 
they actually on the on the Thursday sent, telling me that there was going to be a press conference uh, on Friday the 13th, and would I would come um, as representative of the uh, I'm the president of the Nassau County Village Officials Association, which covers 64 villages in Nassau County. Um, so she was inviting me to come uh, in, in that uh, capacity. Uh, little did I know that um, I was going to be asked to actually speak, and it was uh, live streamed. Um, <laughs> and all the other politicians, if you will, had prepared speeches, and actually they were going over them in the in the uh, waiting room. And here then the county executive calls me up. We have no prepared speech. But I could tell at that time that this was something that was going to be a, a real uh, test of our of ourselves, and as I said, these were trying times. And basically, I I, I reached out to uh, the listeners and and basically saying that they had to be concerned, be cautious, and be calm. And I still utilize uh, that phrase uh, in in addressing this uh, ongoing, uh, as I said, unprecedented um, situation that we face. So on March 16th, I took action after uh, consulting with council, village council, uh, board of trustees, our village administrator. And on Monday at noon, I declared a, uh, on March 16th, I declared a state of emergency in the village of Secret. Um, I may have been one of the first mayors to do that. Um, and basically what we did was close down all the buildings in, in uh, in the village, the museum, the two libraries, Village Hall, the, the fire department was also closed down. I just want to take a side note. Our fire department members, EMT, um, you know, we hear the sirens and we hear the, the, the whistle blow when, when there's an emergency situation. It's been um, a constant reminder of these volunteers getting out of their homes and the safety of their homes day and night to assist in uh, COVID-related and non-COVID-related emergencies. I might add that they've been schooled in all the uh, protocols, um, have all the uh, apparatus and gear, uh, masks, gowns, gloves, uh, their, their face masks that they uh, have are uh, well protecting uh, them. But the fact is they still are going into not only a, a normal state of emergency, but a heightened one as well. Our hats off to them as well. Yeah, absolutely. So each step of the way, and I think the doctor was talking about this, government has also been re reacting because every day it's becoming a new protocol. And because of that, and because of people's behavior going from the normal behavior, and Sam, you know, Seacliff. Yeah, oh yeah. A, a very uh, outgoing uh, community <laughs> It's they're anything the, but on, social distancing when it they comes are, to Seacliff. <laughs> I don't, Friday nights are, are missed now, but uh, yeah. we, uh, we have our beachfront. We have, as I said, the two, muse uh, two libraries. We have the museum. Um, we have 16 parks, uh, two that have playgrounds. Um, we have a beachfront. We have a, a large parking area by that beachfront with a large parking lot. So there was a lot of different um, variables, if you will, within the confines of the village, which is one square mile that we had well, to deal with as well. Yeah, that's really what I wanted to ask you. Can you, can you give me a little more detail? Because this sure. is a one square mile town with all of what you just said. And people are out and about. 
And right. I, so live, for- I live in Seacliff. I'm one of the residents. I must say the response in which, you know, people kept their social healthy distancing, I'm going to now term it as uh, Dr. Gesellter said, I love that term. Um, we kept it very healthy. We were out in the beginning. We didn't really, you know, we're getting all the information, right. you know, but we did stay six feet apart. The kids right. understood it. And, and now when, since it's been locked down, you know, our whole group of friends when which we all know everybody, everyone's indoors. People are not going out. Right. We're really listened. We're all in. So, right. So I do monitor the situation along with uh, Bruce Kennedy, our village administrator and uh, our uh, building inspector to make sure that there's, uh, overall enforcement in the area and addressing those concerns and issues that we that we do that we've had. So since the March 16th uh, emergency order, the last few weeks we've had to cut down certain things just because of, on a on a on a need basis, which are all uh, approved by the state. We are we are now required under uh, one of the 15 executive orders of, of the governor since this has commenced. Um, to get uh, anything that we do COVID related by executive order by myself has to be approved by the State Department of Health uh, through our, our village council. So what we've been trying to do is address ourselves. And as you said, and I agree with you wholeheartedly, our residents have been fantastic in uh, addressing this uh, health uh, emergency. But of course, you know, people can drive to Seacliff, people can even walk to Seacliff that don't live here. And sometimes they take advantage. And sometimes in the beginning, even our own residents, it, it was a learning process. It was, um, yes. And that's part of that be concerned um, uh, aspect of, of the phrase that I came up with and be cautious. So we were putting up posters around town too, reminding people about uh, the distancing um, uh, healthy distancing, which is the new catchphrase. Um, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and we had serious ones, and we had someone that had a little, you know, uh, little humor behind it, but not, you know, drastic. It was just getting the point across yes. that this is serious. Um, you know, don't be a fossil, so to speak. You know, wash your hands and so and uh, distancing as well. So. We, we got the word out. I think that the residents have really, you know, complied uh, wholeheartedly. Um, but it, as we went through the process, we would, I didn't want to shut down like in Long Beach or Atlantic Beach, the boardwalk that we have. I didn't want to shut down the beach like some uh, villages have done. Um, I didn't want to shut down the playgrounds per se, but actually yesterday I, I, I did close down the one at the beach. Um, because it was just being used too much. Um, and uh, we still have the beaches open, but we've closed down all the parking um, at the beach uh, yeah. as well. So if people want to walk uh, in our one square mile or from the close by neighborhood in Glen Cove, they can certainly do that, get their exercise, um, sure. get some uh, you know, good uh, uh, views of, of the water of Hempstead Harbor and uh, participate that way. Um, but we still have, we have the police on call, we have our own uh, code on call. I've asked the town of Voice to Bay, uh, public safety, and the, uh, come around also to keep an eye on that, that area specifically um, as, as a point of uh, congregation. Um, so two, two questions here, you know, <clears throat> um, for both of you. And, and and Gary, for you first, you know, 
Um, now that, you know, we're in this situation and now that everybody's a little more familiar with it and now that the, I, I, I don't even know how to term this, right? The mass hysteria of the initial shock and impact is, is settling down a little bit, at least in New York, you know, um, for maybe New Yorkers, because that's how we think. And, you know, are, are we, like you said, you know, are we being fooled here? Is there, is there a stronger second wave of this thing that's going to be coming next year? Is there, um, as you guys are learning for this whole process, you know, does this now, you know, really change the way, um, you know, we as humans, you guys as doctors, as a hospital, as an organization, view how you're going to now conduct things moving forward, put new policies in place. Um, <clears throat> you know, just g give me a little bit because I know, you know, from, you know, you, you guys are both very familiar with my company, you know, we've had to turn everything virtual and this is something we eventually wanted to do. But now given the situation, you know, we're, feeling you know adapting and and maneuvering but i'm also aware of that in my opinion personally and, and you guys can maybe chime in on this this too shall pass you know and and there will be some normalcy back to life i'm a big believer in that now that normal might be slightly different and it may be needed from a spiritual societal whatever standpoint you want to look at it for humans to learn to do things a little bit different to begin with um but you know I, I, how do you gary from a medical standpoint like like when is when do you see somewhat of a return partial return in in where the statistics and the numbers show and then the avenue of how do you return back to normal what is that so so you're giving me more credit than my my background allows right so so all i can tell you is that <laughs> he's so humble i love it the, <laughs> no no it's important sam i mean the yeah. best lessons are those learned from other people's mistakes absolutely i have been battering my head for the past three weeks to try and get our county um our state to listen to those lessons learned from Hubei province. Um, and just a couple of examples, right? So your question to answer directly is, the minute you let your guard down, like South Korea and Singapore, you start seeing re-entry of people who now are not tested and are bringing this, uh, this uh, COVID-2 back into their environment. So, so every time you slacken somewhere, you, you weaken your defenses against it. So, so what changes that? Well, if you look at what China is doing now, and they made a big fuss yesterday of reopening certain businesses and travel, uh, relaxing travel uh, in and out of uh, uh, Wuhan, they're doing it with everybody being tested. So anybody who is tested to have antibodies, uh, both IgG and IgM, showing recent exposure and immunity, those people are being allowed to travel and get back into society, essentially to re-energize the economy, right? So before we can talk about anything next, we have to talk about the strategy for testing people so that you will then be labeled, right? I'm I love that. Okay. I can get back into that. So that's Got the it. medical part of it. Let's talk about a little bit, and this is why I wanted to be on the show with the mayor, 
because he has knowledge and influence of local community politics. What we learned from the beginning, and, and I'm always skeptical about taking uh, what comes out of China as, as gospel, but if you look at the map, if you go to the Johns Hopkins world map and you look at China, you'll see that they contain the Wuhan or Hubei province mortality to, to a very low number compared to what's happened in New York City. And if you look at the radius that extends outside of Hubei, which is really in the middle of China, you'll see that very few provinces had, had anywhere near the same number of infected, hospitalized, and dead patients as we are seeing in the United States. And if you look at how they were able to do that, and only if it's true, but, but at least the policy worked, was that they, they took people who were symptomatic and likely to be, to be uh, COVID-19 positive, and those who tested positive, and they immediately isolated them away from their homes. So they mm. took those people right out of community circulation, and they put them into what they call camps. They, you saw these pictures of these people in PPEs, dancing and doing yoga, and all being co-ordered in stadia uh, and large tents away from their families. And when I saw this happening, and this is something that was highlighted uh, by, by the New York Times uh, science reporter, um, where he was there and he, and he showed this behavior, right? So, yeah, I read that article. <laughs> right. And, and so I made a video two weeks ago saying, in order for us to flatten this curve and prevent people from unnecessarily being exposed and then getting it, we needed to isolate suspected patients and, and COVID positive patients away from their homes. And mm. looking at the hotel crisis and the travel industry, I said, just give rooms, right? Give rooms yeah. to people who are testing and people who do not want to go home because they're symptomatic and keep them away from their aged loved ones. I made Some are YouTube, doing that. I made a YouTube video. I started reaching out yeah. to people. Okay. I reached out to the, the supervisor of, of uh, uh, our town. Um, I reached out to our local senator and I said, underwrite this and let's get that policy in place. What is different about Nassau and Suffolk and Long Island is that there is no hierarchy of somebody standing there. I am the mayor of New York City and I'm saying I'm hiring 10 or I'm renting 10,000 rooms for isolating patients from hotels that are empty. Right. Mm. And nobody could help me with that. Nobody could say this is what we need to do. So I believe that if we had understood from that lesson that went on in, 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 in Hubei province and, and, and deployed it in Nassau and Suffolk, where we were a little bit behind the, the Queens, Bronx, Manhattan surge, right? Anybody getting off a plane at Kennedy or, or LaGuardia are going into Manhattan. And we were going to see those people exiting Manhattan coming to Long Island. If we had done something along those lines, we would have had a lower number of people. Today, they reported 500 deaths in Nassau County, right? Yeah. And, and we are looking at one of the highest death rates from people who should not have, or, or from a policy-making decision. People should have known better. I'm a doctor. I treat sick people. I'm not a, a health policy expert, and I don't know who the health policy expert is in this area who can really help us with this. So moving forward, what we need to do next is create a, a health policy czar, a community health physician, or an epidemiologist who's responsible for the well-being of the communities of these of this bi-county area. Ed, I'm going to let you step there. I <laughs> and well, Gary, I, 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 I gotta tell you, you know, there's one thing that 
I, I'm with you 100% on this. This is a very, very good solution that can be put into place. Ed, where is the infrastructure for that? <laughs> In China. <laughs> yeah, the benefit, the benefit of that kind of control. Part of the... Uh... Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, now I can. Okay. Right. So I, I said it was in China and I wasn't being facetious. Um, yeah. I think from what everybody would love to have in a perfect world would be available spaces. And as the doctor indicated, hotels are open because they're considered essential uh, service uh, under the governor's uh, ex executive order. So the, the capability is there. The supply is there, if you will. It's the, it's, it's the policy level. Mm -hmm. And that's why uh, when, you, when you say a, a health czar, anytime you use those type of words or you use China's uh, uh, form of government to implement such a policy, you have to balance it with, uh, you know, and I'm not the first one to say this, is, you know, our form of government um, it being uh, really uh, not centralized to that level of uh, authoritative uh, uh, you know, role by, by sure. the central government. Right. So given, given that fact, then you have to rely on the people for participating in a, in a, in a manner that uh, would, on a voluntary basis, address those issues. I think we're a long way from, from the point of, of view, especially at the inception of uh, COVID-19, that the government would, would take such, you know, type of action, uh, which is not uh, normally, uh, you know, uh, viewed as something that we as, as you know, United States Americans uh, would, would entertain. But with that said, this is, as I said in the beginning, this is unprecedented. And sometimes you have to have unprecedented uh, responses. Certainly what the governor has been doing through his 15 executive orders, orders, what we've been doing in the village, what every mayor in, in Nassau has been doing across uh, Long Island, you know, is unprecedented. So where does that us unprecedented you know, entrees stop, it, it can keep going. And whether new policies or protocols will be addressed in the future is, is yet to be seen. But I go back to the, my initial point, uh, the reason why China can do something like that is because it's China. But, yeah, but and, let, me, let, me, yeah. let me chime in there, yeah. Sam. So, so y y yes and no, right? So um, the the need for a solution is recognizing the problem. And when the problem is a person comes to a hospital and they get tested or they, they see a doctor who says you are most likely to be COVID-19 infected, right? Um, they then say to the doctor, I don't want to go home. You don't have to create an executive order to say to them, I agree with you. It's not safe for you to go home. Let's put you in some place where you can get food, water and hygiene and, and be separated from your family so as not to be part of the domestic infection rate. Nobody was in a position to say, let's right. provide that, even though the facilities existed. Well, I and think that's, that's when they, right. But that's when I think even uh, the president with uh, the, uh, the uh, hospital boat that's uh, in, in New York now and, and the city and the state setting up uh, um, facilities uh, throughout you know, this, the state as well was a, was a response, 
limited on certain occasions, obviously, to the need. And they didn't know what the need was going to be. And that was certainly part of the uh, equation. So how so do we it, put a policy like that in place? So hang on, Why can, isn't there one? Can I just finish this? Thing? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. So, so what was really important was, was timing. And, and when you're in, in the situation where your infection rate is low, so you're at the, you're at the first inflection point of the upkick in, in, in the Ill, illness, and you're starting to see your first patients coming in, that's when you had the opportunity to stop this from those people going back into their homes. That ship has sailed. So, so to now make, make hotel rooms available, you know, I tried this. You're making it available to healthcare workers so that they don't come home every day and, and, and feel the angst of dealing with their families. But that, that's a, a, a tiny minority. So, so the, the, uh, um, this, the healthy distancing, this the so-called home quarantine has all had its effect and we're seeing the drop in the number of admissions we're seeing we're seeing the lag obviously in 778 deaths in in uh, in nassau county or or in new york yesterday which is the to the the consequence of the early people requiring two weeks of intubation going nowhere and then obviously passing away and so the death rate lags the, the, the uh, admission rate. As a physician, we deal with illness. We don't deal with prevention of illness. And, and that needs, I think the good consequence of this is people will look at ways of, of preventing that from happening by creating an emergency surge plan, emergency isolation plan, and, we'll, and the politicians will get together with that. And again, exactly as the mayor said, you know, in times of stress, there is often an overreaction. If you look what happened to, to people who, who were su suspects after 9-11 and, and all of the effects that happened in which we looked beyond our human rights record, right, and now are pulling back, we can do this in a measured way that will prevent loss of life in the future. And, of course, you know, better vaccines and all of the healthcare and, and immunology stuff. So it's a massive lesson, and America will lead in that. In that war, there's no question about that. Sam, just to, to get to the point, though, there, on each government level, there is an office of emergency management. We mm -hmm. have that on the county level, certainly the state and, and uh, uh, even FEMA and, and what ha other agencies on a federal level. So the, 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 the uh, apparatus is there on, on each uh, level of government, even you know, on a town uh, basis. So uh, it's just a question of the coordination of that. And in our situation, our you know, uh, system, so to speak, the, the governor for, for New York uh, would have say over all those type of protocols and policies and implementations as far as um, getting the proper and appropriate uh, facilities available. So if he wanted to you know, bring in the National Guard and uh, you know, for certain action and, and what have you, uh, quarantine and, and, and such, he has that ability to do that. So, so then, so it is up to the governor to either make that decision or, you know, I think what Gary's trying to say, and correct me if I'm wrong, Gary, is, you know, how can we get a health, maybe, and then maybe this is a little my own spin on it, 
a health professional like a doctor who also you know can lead a aspect of politics within a county to put these type of measures into policy and say hey you know this is this is what happened we we paid for this because we didn't do x y and z now if we can put this into policy and into place how does this work like how do you know and Sam, can I just can I just interject for one second? Sure, sure, yeah. I know you. I know you were asking the doctor, but let me emphasize again: each level of, of government, from the county to the state, has a Department of Health with a commissioner. So when I've been on conference calls with both the state and or the county, the uh, commissioner of health is an integral part of any policy and protocols that are being implemented through the either county executive or the governor. So there, there is personnel that's part of the government that have, um, you know, wide experience in health issues with full staffs and departments and what have you that do provide information back to the, the governor or the county executive and they work in hand in hand. And then they also, um, you know, give out uh, information to local levels, such as the mayors as well. So, so I can I can take over from where the mayor left off, right? So, so you showed the escalation of of government, and I'll show you what I did, um, and ex and exemplified what that really meant in reality, right? So, in a very narrow window of time, recognizing that we needed to do something. To, to prevent this from happening. Now, let's put it in perspective. As soon as we knew that we were gonna start seeing COVID-19 patients coming to our hospital, we did not wanna bring those people and PUIs, which are called patients under investigation, COVID negative tested awaiting, right? Um, we, we erected tents outside our emergency department. We had those people tested and wait there, right? We needed to be able to say to these people, firstly, when you're waiting for nine or 10 days for a result, it's, it's hopeless to say, go home and wait for the result when you know they're sick and you're seeing all the symptoms and it's very unlikely to be anything else because you're testing them for influenza and that call, it's called the respiratory pathogen panel and those are negative and you get that result in one hour, right? So mm -hmm. now we do this and we're seeing these people and I cannot bear the sight of seeing a person who is definitely COVID-19 but waiting for the result going home or having to get into the same car as the person who brought them there. So what did I do? I started by speaking to a friend of mine who was a friend of the supervisor of our town. Okay, I'm not going to say which town it is. Right. And that person was immediately sympathetic to this plan and understood the urgency of this. They said this is above her pay grade. So she put me in touch with the New York State person in charge of the Department of Finance who was responsible for funding of whatever was needed to get this policy enacted. Understanding the need and understanding that we had either room availability. There are two state universities of New York, one in, in Old Westbury and one in Stony Brook, that could have immediately become operationalized for this purpose. Hmm. I never heard back from anybody from New York State. So we always say that politics is local. So I went to my local politician. Now you, Sam, are seeing this in, in Seacliff. I wanna know from the mayor that if you went to the mayor, how would he have escalated it to make sure that his uh, constituents and, and his citizens get the kind of care that I as a physician was recommending? 
Well, look, so, so of everything I know of Ed, he's a very progressive thinking guy. And, you know, he obviously has a tremendous love and respect for his community. And he is willing to do everything it takes to get the community healthy and, you know, to, to stay ahead of the game. And, you know, if I had gone to him with something like that, I think Ed's the type of guy who, you know, obviously would have to evaluate the situation and talk with you first to get to hear it from, you know, your mouth to see exactly what the severity of the situation is. And then I think Ed's the type of guy that if he did agree with the situation and, and, and what it is, he's the type that would, you know, kind of open up the door as a gateway guy to whoever is needed to speak with within this, you know, within this realm. I mean, I don't really know how I don't, I don't know the logistics of local politics in that what can be implemented under what jurisdiction with who. So, you know, I think if things were within his power to be able to do things, I think he would. I think one of the, one of the, and and Gary, you know, I, I, I totally agree with what you're saying, but I think one of the things that, you know, we, we cannot forget, and this may be a fault to our system as a whole, but, you know, doctors, are trained constantly in the ER, okay, and in, in the beginning or in areas where they're under stress and they understand that type of critical thinking from, you know, from the get-go. Whereas I think when it comes to the formation of politics and that avenue of thinking, I just don't think the collaboration that's needed can act as fast within the rate of speed that this thing took over. So I don't think anybody could realistically implement you know at that speed what you're saying however i think it's an incredible idea and it's something that should definitely be heard and put into place going forward because look i mean it's you know it's something that like you said this thing can come back i don't know if it will or whatever it may be and 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 yeah you know it sucks lives are lost people make mistakes i mean we didn't know what the hell hit us right and you get frustrated. You see that from the beginning. You see a solution and no one's listening. <laughs> so I really get your frustration, you know? But I don't know. I, I think overall, it, it definitely, you know, with the speed, again, I keep going back to the word speed, the key component here with this COVID-19 that I've read and I've studied, everything to me comes back to its speed. Uh, the rate in which it spreads and the best thing you said so far, Gary, and that I think is the number one solution, and I don't know how we implement this, Ed, and maybe you could chime in on this, is getting the tests for every single person to test, be able to separate people and understand who's got it, who doesn't. And, and that's really the best way to get back to anything. That's true. But uh, as you know, we've been following this uh, you know, 24-7 on any news channel that you uh, want to watch and you'll see how the government if you will from the federal level down um reacted or didn't react uh quickly enough uh when when it was apparent that uh um this was uh you know upon us um we still have issues going on about getting masks you know i i was uh you know asked if the through Lions Clubs that I'm involved with international to money was going to be coming to buy ventilators. I said, fine, except the, where are you going to buy them from? 
So you see now the manufacturers are, are converting their production lines to things like this. So there is a, a reaction the first time in our you know nation's history, probably first time in world history, um, where uh, countries are reacting to this and where there's you know uh, economic um, manipulation, if you will, uh, to to produce the thing type of items that are, are needed at this particular point. So hopefully in the future, when uh, the uh, signs are there of such an impending uh, 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 health uh, situation that we have like now, that the that there will be programs, policies, and, and uh, the manufacturing in place because you have this experience. And I think that's what government is all about. It's about reacting to you know, the needs of uh, the society at any given time. Uh, such as when laws are passed or amended, it's all based on social need. So um, I'm sure in the future, from the federal level down, um, that that will uh, occur. Understand, though, on the village level, we are, you know, uh, very limited in our uh, capabilities other than uh, uh, what we have uh, in front of us. Like I said before, even our executive orders, anything that I produce now has to go in front of the state for approval to the Department of Health. But I could just say on a personal level in, in the village, and Sam will know what I'm talking about, um, we have certain agencies that have taken care of our seniors and our vulnerable residents as well. Um, we have uh, programs where we do health uh, uh, programs we, we, and, and food and meals um, on a regular basis to, to seniors and other people that are in need. Uh, there's an organization called Mutual Concerns that heads this. It's a not-for-profit. Uh, we in the, the village, you know, work with them. We have a food pantry that we have uh, in the basement of Village Hall for, for Mutual Concerns to, to bring to people. We provide the village bus when we could to transport the seniors to uh, the uh, luncheons and also take them to doctors, take them to food shopping. So when this hit, we had to uh readjust that system and those programs uh with the correct protocols so we're still providing uh food for those in need we're still uh providing essential services through a network um through the village and mutual concerns we have a senior outreach a worker in, in uh, as part of our uh personnel she's working remotely from home uh in assisting the, uh those in need medically uh, the elderly uh, and the and the vulnerable as well. So uh, we, we're constantly in contact with with them uh, through through um, you know through the village. Um, but uh, beyond that, when it comes to doing the things like the town or the county or the state are doing, obviously uh, our capabilities are much smaller. Yeah. So I mean, that's you know, this is a good summary of you know what this thing is where it's at how it's spreading and you know the the front lines from the medical aspect from a um, governmental aspect but at the same time you know it also we're encompassing the the carryover from one to the other and I, you know, I, I'm a big believer in everything can be resolved in communication, right? So in, in, in the sense that if we are able to communicate better as a society, we can really take this thing on better and just 
learn a huge lesson here and better ourselves in general. You know, that being said, you know, um, the state of this thing is what it is today, right? And here's where we are. So, you know, it, it's, it's, it's good. We can learn from the what ifs and what we could do for the forward. But let's just, you know, hone this down to exactly where we are today for a second, okay? Um, and where we are right now, you know, um, Gary, where do you see the hope here? And, and where do you see, you know, this thing for people that are listening and now getting all these facts and understanding the intricacies of what's going on and what has happened and what can be done? Where do you see this uh, three months from now? Where do you see this six months from now? Where do you see this a year from now? I really want to get your take from a medical perspective and a society standpoint as to what you think. Yeah, again, you know, um, I have no prior knowledge of this and, and this is, my feelings are just an amalgam of, of what I've read uh, from the lens of, of a, a physician who passes information. Okay, so, so the first thing that, that we saw today, uh, which was in the governor's daily communique, is that when they looked at the predictions uh, Fauci predicted that, you know, we would see 100,000 deaths up, up between 100 and 250,000 deaths in the United States. Um, they got the McKinsey to do a consult uh, for the state of New York to look at what, would, what the different projections would look like. And the very, very positive news is that because of people doing the right thing, um, in terms of healthy distancing, shutting down their businesses at enormous personal and, and, and community financial losses, um, and not breaking any of the EOs that were put in place, we have curbed it much more quickly with much less loss of life. And if you look at the numbers, you know, the curve turned yeah. down way below what... what yeah, what that was very, very... I was very happy to see that. So, so we've, we've already seen... So in, in the hospitals across the state, um, we're seeing, as I said earlier, the death tolls are rising, but that's the lag effect. We're, right. seeing, we're seeing discharges of, of many COVID-19 patients. A beautiful thing is that every time a person's taken off a ventilator or discharged from the hospital, they play celebratory music on the, on the PA systems in our hospitals. <laughs> that's, and it's a wonderful thing, believe that's me. That's great, the, yeah. It's, it's countering the doom and gloom. That's right, it's a life uh, saved. I read an unbelievable article which I, can, which I could add to, to these notes that was written in The Atlantic um, entitled How the Pandemic Will End. And it provides a number of scenarios, most of them having this kind of, this bump down, uh, slow, slow decline um, based upon the timing of uh, a, a workable uh, vaccine, which is about projected to be about 18 months. You've got to do safety testing, dosage testing, efficacy testing. And by the time that's done, you know, 18 months have passed. So in that 18 months, we are going to need some kind of signature, right? Are you COVID risk? Are you COVID non-risk? Um, and that's going to be done on, on ubiquitous testing. And it's going to be non-invasive testing, and we're going to be labeled. You're going to either have it on your phone, you know, some kind of monitoring system that'll give me peace of mind that I'm taking my 94-year-old mother-in-law out for dinner. She's not in near somebody who 
is, is at risk of, of giving her this infection. So, so it'll slowly wane. I don't think life will ever be the same until we have a worldwide vaccine and or this thing mutates. And when they mutate, they say that coronaviruses mutate into a more innocuous strain. So it'll become more like flu, uh, but we don't know any of that, right? The reason that this has been such an enormous pandemic is because it was not as serious as COVID-1, which was the original SARS of 2003. It's not as fatal as Ebola, and it's got a long asymptomatic period in which people are at risk. So unwittingly, everybody, everybody is at risk. Um, and, and the sickest patients um, are hospitalized, but the majority are not. Whereas in Ebola, you know, you went to hospital and you died. So it just collapsed itself. Mm. Um, I think it'll be a couple of years before we will feel like this is completely behind us. I think that, that from, a, from a, a, a health policy point of view, which is why the both of us are on here, I would hate ever to be in a situation where such enormous strain on our resources in New York City, in the United States, to put this healthcare system, the most expensive per, per capita of life saved in the world, right? Mm -hmm. With, you could argue, the least uh, effective centralized pandemic protection system that exists. And that's why we have more than double the number of the next, the next country's highest number of infected patients. Right. That's, so, I didn't know that. Okay. So, so you can look at that in the Johns Hopkins Resource Center. It's updated daily. So, so that'll change. And there will obviously be policies in place that will have, uh, uh, you know, the uh, presidential, what do they call it, um, uh, uh, defense um, uh, authorization uh, to force companies to do certain things. But you never want to be in that situation. You never want to have to be making ventilators as quickly as possible. Because by the time you've executed that, you know, you've missed the boat. It's all about timing. And timing in, in, in pandemic um, uh, prevention is all about getting to it before it becomes a pandemic. So, Gary, real quick on what you just said, right? And, and, and then I'll shoot it over to Ed. You know, um, in, a, in, a, in a society that thinks a certain way, right? In a culture where we live a certain way, in a... Uh, in a system of thinking from a social standpoint in how we are right um we one of the things that i paid attention to was the fact that we do not have anything in this country stored away um for anything like this meaning like you know if the amount of masks and you know something as funny as toilet paper and I, I, you know but the amount of masks that you know, um, if we had stored somewhere that could have been distributed, let's say right away, and the amount of ventilators that could have been distributed right away, if we had stuff like this built and put away, which, you know, a venta, you know, a mask is not that costly. I understand ventilators are, but, you know, in terms of being able to have this type of, um, this type of emergency care sort of say things that you need done and and look here's the thing right we say oh this hit us hard and this was the first time but this really hasn't been the first time that you know we've been hit with some sort of a virus spreading that kills humanity right so I mean, this is the most severe and the fastest rate we've been hit with it but 
you know, it hasn't been the first time, you know, and, and so what, you know, what can we do to, you know, make sure that, you know, we do have an extra supply of X amount of, you know, masks, gloves, things of that sort. And th those are the basic stuff, but it still helps prevent numbers moving forward. It does help slow it down. Yeah, so, so just a reality check, right? Um, I think, you know, right at the beginning, I said that the community did better than expected, right? We beat those, those curve projections right now. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so it was said that if you did what South Korea and Singapore did um, by being draconian right at the beginning, you would be able to flatten the curve. And flattening the curve means exposing the least number of, of citizens to, to this it. thing. Right. If, you do not, if you do not empower or, or deploy those things, everybody gets it. 100% of the population gets it. And you could say that 1% or 2% of the population dies from it. So you've got to do something to bring it down. We've done that. So Americans, and particularly in New York, have done that and they, they, they really need to be lauded for that. If yeah, compare, kudos, seriously, yeah. Exactly. If yeah. you compare how we behave to how Italians behaved, in the beginning, they didn't take it seriously. They didn't see that. And if you know that hugging, double kissing, that, yeah, that yeah. real physical, social togetherness that they deploy, they were victims of that, that sort of personality, right? Absolutely. So we, we, are, we are better off than they are. Then, then reality check. We did not run out of ventilators, right? So they were preparing for a surge based upon predictions that we would see 100 to 250,000 deaths. In today's communications, they don't have a shortage of ventilators. They have, as I can see, not really had to choose between does he get a ventilator or does she get a ventilator? Who Thanks for die? clearing that up. Right. So we were able to, we were able to, turn this around just before before we that okay through. so nice. it's not all, it's not all bad news uh, the other thing is that you know it's easy to be a monday morning quarterback to say well we need to we need to store you know half a million ventilators in some repository um because of some icbm intercontinental ballistic missile we don't know what the threat is right. the next pand the next pandemic may call may cause some kind of infection on the skin you're going to have to have, you know, enormous amounts of, of, of silverdine, you know, things that right. you cannot predict. So, right. so, you know, I think the news is, is, is good. I think the tail of this pandemic is going to be slower than anticipated. I think that re-energizing the, the economy is going to be based upon survival of the fittest. So we're going to see, you know, the Wall Street talks about flight to quality. Unfortunately, those companies that did not have enough cash on hand did, are not going to get enough uh, federal support are going to are going to are going to cave in, and 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 the knock-on effects are going to be enormous. The biggest knock-on effect is the loss of life. Okay, yeah. and 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 that's where my job becomes impassioned, and I don't ever see this happen again. And that's up to the politicians. No, I I I, I got it, man. So, um, so where do you see Ed? You know, from a 
politician standpoint in that, you know, Seacliff uh, has a bunch of restaurants, right? These guys need to make a living and people need to kind of get back to getting to be able to pay their bills and feed their families and things of that sort, right? Where, where what is your personal outtake? And obviously there's no answer here. I just want to see what your opinion is, is to, you know, when can we get back to, is it, do we go back with small and small and less hours of operation in the beginning? And, you know, uh, until we get something in place where everyone's tested before they go in a restaurant, where does this go? Like, where, where, is, the, where is the light in that? That's the uh, big question because uh, it reminds me when I uh, picked up my son in uh, high school at, after 9-11, the day of 9-11. And I and I were in the car together, and I said, "The world will never be the same." And uh, certainly, that's the, the case here. Um, the world will never be the same. Um, whether it's because people on their own will take what they're going through now and uh, learn from that and adopt new ways, if you will. Um, as the doctor said, you know, Italy, you know. Everybody's kissing on both sides of the cheek. It's very close, you know. You know, you know. Unfortunately, unfortunately, we saw what happened there, and that's when we really took it serious. Especially for people that you know would travel to Italy or read about Italy or what have you, and experience you know the beauty of of the of the, the country and the people, and how they were so affected. So we had that, you know, ability to observe that and, and take this really serious. You see pictures of Times Square this morning where there's like one car on the road and, you know, nobody yeah. on the street. Um, you know, so the people of New York City, Nassau County and, and Suffolk, I think overall, have taken this very seriously uh, to, to this point. With that said, even if it comes down the curb, that curb of those the individuals learning from this is going to be, you know, another experience. How far and how fast will they get back into the norm? And will the norm will never be the norm again? So what does that mean? Um, you know, I, from the village's point of view, you know, it's true. We have a few restaurants. One was just opening, you know, and we feel for them. We feel for their workers. Um, you know, a lot of them have takeout. That's great. The, the residents are actually, you know, supporting those restaurants. Yeah. We're doing meals on wheels to the to the hospitals uh, and the restaurants uh, through various organizations and, and 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 volunteer donations and what have you. So there's there is some lifeblood, you know, for the restaurants and whatever. Even though it wasn't like it used to be, where you know, social gathering places. When that day comes back, uh, it's you know yet to be seen. Um, I'm hoping sooner than later. I'm hoping without the threat of of this uh, disease and this virus uh, being among us. And I think the people on their own will see, and, and and that will take time. But I think on their own, through the medical uh, you know uh, uh, protocols and and uh, healthy distancing, if you want to will, that we'll we'll get back to to norm as. No one will ever be again. 
So, but you know, I, 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 and, and I, and I respect both you and, and, and I hear both of you in, in, in that sense. And, you know, and, and I'm very, very, um, you know, I'm, I'm very apathetic to obviously everyone who's been affected by this, whose lives are being lost. But, you know, I'm also a realist in, you know, and maybe this has to do with, you know, first nine years of my life growing up in a totalitarian government in a place where, you know, you had head in, you hid in shelters because there was bombs going on and, you know, and you had to go down, you had to go down, you know, like, so I, I, maybe I look at this a little different, but there's a reality of what happens when, you know, people need to feed their families. There's a reality of something kicking in where people are like, okay, you know, um, I, my company has gone bankrupt. These small businesses, this is shut down. That's that. I got to get out and I have to do something. What's my other option, right? There is that reality that is, I don't think that we understand yet. And I don't think that our society has really taken in, in what that's going to look like. So, you know, I think, just as important as what Gary's talking about with this curve and the and, and, and understanding the disease and controlling that, there is the there is the necessity human element, there is the there is the mental element of what the human psyche can uh, hold and can take in, and then there is a element of you know uh, emotional reaction to that that is going to take place at some point sooner than later. So, you know, we, how do we, in your opinion, figure out how to also slowly build that curve up? You know, and the way I look at this whole thing and I look at the statistics of it, I say, okay, we're hitting our peak this week, right? If we go by this model of China or whatever it is, maybe, once the thing starts going 40%, 50% back down, Okay, and maybe it's 60%. I don't know what that number is. And let's say that takes another eight weeks after this, you know, peak. At that point, do businesses start going back with some sort of social distance, uh, sorry, healthy distancing put into place? You know, like we would open our facilities, but we would only open them, let's say, for five hours a day where you only allow certain people to come in at it per hour and you wear gloves and you wear masks and you stay six feet apart from each other. Like we, we also, from a policy standpoint, I know us as a company, we're thinking about how to implement those policies moving forward in that you both know we were about to open this massive facility, right? So in doing all of this, we're also thinking about those things to put into place but how does all this fit in at some where do you see people once that need kicks in which i was talking about in the beginning to want to go back that that, that that we have to also look and meet that marker Gary? you want me to take that one or oh yeah Gary? whatever go ahead uh, both of you i want both your takes well on this. just as the well just as the governor through the last 15 or executive orders has incrementally broke down, if you will, or curtailed or contained um, establishments, businesses, the courts, um, every aspect of our life, uh, elections, uh, village elections been postponed, every aspect 
right, in his orders. So I would imagine when he's of the opinion through his health experts, his commissioner, health experts, uh, the people that he advise him, that he'll be making those decisions to bring back those businesses on, on a need uh, basis so that, um, you know, as he's broken down the businesses and what's essential, what's not essential, those, those will be redefined in due time. When it comes to, you know, in, you know, as a restaurant, say, he could impose certain things. Maybe servers will have to wear gloves from now on. It just, you know, there's a, a myriad of, of an, any number of protocols that could be adopted uh, through the, the governor's executive orders, let alone legislation uh, or regulations. So, um, you know, right now, that's, that's where that would initially come from. So, so what's going to move the needle, obviously, is, is ubiquitous testing. Yeah. And, and ubiquitous testing means that everybody gets tested. Um, and you then divide your population into two categories, those who are inoculated from it with antibodies and those who are at risk. And the at-risk people will have to adopt behaviors that... Uh, that sort of will make life look a lot more like it does now. Um, the next thing that will that'll change life will be, will be the vaccine. And once you've got the vaccine, life goes back to normal. Agreed. In the meantime, in the meantime, you know, um, uh, and I think, I think uh, the testing issue is going to be available in short order, you know, a couple weeks, months. Can I, can I, can you clarify something as a physician? Because this is something that I, I really wanted to ask you that you, you just hit on. This testing. I'm hearing there is this test and there's this test. There's accuracy pers uh, of, uh, of certain tests, certain tests. Well, like there's different areas, private companies selling testing. Like what, how, I, I can, what is, what are you, okay, how, <laughs> how does this work? Like how do we know if someone, someone can be tested, but they had the symptoms four days before it, so they're not showing positive, but they're actually positive. Like what? Yeah, so, so this is a podcast in itself, right? So, so. So the first test <laughs> is, the deep, is the deep nasal is is the deep nasal swab, right? The deep nasal swab picks up virus particles on the swab, and they use a thing called RT-PCR, which is reverse transcriptase uh, rap, uh, uh, PCR, which is which is an amplification of the viral RNA, which is the genetic code of the virus. Yep, and it's positive or negative. We are not aware of false, we're not aware of the number, the percentage of false negatives and false positives. And there are different labs and different, different devices that will give you different, different results. <laughs> the next thing is in the recovery phase, right? The convalescent phase. If you test the same way, you may still test positive, but you're picking up viral components that are denatured and dead. So you're picking up sequences of dead viruses that'll still be positive, call it a false positive, and, and you don't actually have that virus in your oro or nasopharynx, in, in, in your mucous membranes. So there's, there's uncertainty there. 
um, which is why the CDC changed their recommendations to when people could get back into or come out of quarantine, right? Um, and they said 14 days from the onset of symptoms implied that you developed your own immunity and you wouldn't be able to make other people sick, right? So I've got one of my partners was positive and he spent 14 days quarantined in his parents' basement because he didn't want to go home to his wife, who's, a, who's an OBGYN and he had two kids. Um, and he's now back at work. The second testing is what I'm talking about now, which is the antibody testing. That tests your immunity. So once you've had the disease, your body creates antibodies. Those antibodies, short-term or IgM, those are the rapid reacting uh, antibodies. And then the IgM slowly gets less as the IgG becomes the permanent immunity, right? That's how most of these things work. So you'll test, you'll test your body's antibodies. That's usually a blood test. They could probably do it from a finger stick from a small amount of your blood. And then you'll be labeled. You'll be labeled had it and immune, recently getting over it and immune, or, or, uh, or COVID naive, meaning you've never had it. And you're an at-risk person. You're an at-risk person until you, get a, until you get a vaccine. Figure out about 18 months. So our behaviors are going to be dictated by those, those issues. You're at risk, you're not at risk, uh, or you're now going to be in How do we get that test out to the masses? Well, so, so I, I was um, talking to a colleague uh, who is an Italian surgeon um, in Milan, and he was saying that they rapidly wanted those tests, so they got an enormous number of kits from China. They were junk, right? They, <laughs> That's what I'm saying, positive, right? <laughs> right, so, so <laughs> it's going to take a while for the people who can, who can pass that information, the lab core the Quest, the biotech companies that know how to test the, the validity of, of an antibody test for them to choose it. But there are people who are selling this stuff online for private people to purchase. Uh, I think that's absolutely the wrong way to go. Yeah, we, we, uh, we came across a couple of very reputable companies in, in, in our world and uh, who were selling these COVID-19 tests. And it's interesting because I, you know, I'm friendly with some of the guys on top of this company and, and I reached out to them and I'm like, you know, please explain to me, you know, like, what, what are we doing here? And, and you know, where... How accurate is this? And gave him a whole list of questions from my, you know, society and medical standpoint as to like, all right, I can help. I'll help you get this out if this is helpful. But like, what is this? You know, like, and I got to tell you, it didn't really get any responses back. Yeah. And I, I was like, I was a little like, hmm. Like, you know, I, I, and, and that's going to make me think twice about working with a company like that, you know? And, and, and it's, uh, that in itself, and that's where I kind of started questioning. I'm like, what are all these tests that are out there? Who, what's valid? How do we do this? You've got to depend upon the experts, and, and those are the people who make a living uh, doing tests. You go for blood work every, you know, every time you go to a doctor, you get blood work done. Those, those tests are, are, are standardized to very, very strict parameters. You know, right, that's standards. right. And, and there's a reason for that. And, and, you know, you go for a test that will show whether or not you have prostate cancer. You don't want that test to be a false negative, you know. So, so let the experts deal with that. And when they're ready to roll this out, your known brands will be the ones that you really have to depend upon. 
Uh, I'm sure that there are a million organizations or, or companies that have this kind of, uh, and it's not complicated testing for antibodies. It's very simple. Right. So, and they're trying to do that now because they want to use the convalescent serum, right? So this idea of convalescent serum is, is delivering passive immunity. So you imagine that you, you have recovered from COVID-19, you go to a, to a blood bank, New York blood center, they draw blood from you, they determine that you have antibodies, you then donate serum. That serum can then be used to confer passive immunity to somebody who is sick right now, uh, either to prevent them from developing the, the SARS, the serious uh, acute respiratory syndrome, by providing them with antibodies that kill the virus, as opposed to them making their own antibodies. Or you can give it to people in the preclinical but at-risk communities, so elderly people in nursing homes, to try and confer passive immunity. So there's a whole lot of stuff that, that can still be done to help diminish further exposure and further illness. Wow. Okay. So again, you know, going back to what I was saying in terms of, you know, giving people, so, you know, a couple of things that I took away from this is obviously the importance of having testing, the proper testing and getting it out to people as fast as possible putting together some sort of proper infrastructure to be able to manage and stay a step ahead of this thing and how it travels and the speed in which it travels, right? From a, from a medical standpoint to a legislator standpoint, right? So, um, and, and, and the other avenue of this is the compliance of people, right? And, and really on, you know, being able to uh, truly practice healthy distancing and being able to understand the importance of, you know, um, how serious this thing can be if we as individuals don't assume responsibility and do something about it, right? So now that being said, like I said, you know, when, when going back into the workforce, I personally, you know, looking forward, I, just as aggressive as I think you're approach should be or should have been to the hotels and, and those type of situations. I think we have to have implementation from a legislative standpoint, Ed, to be able to say, here's how we're going to allow everyone to go back to work and here's why and here's how we lower the risks and here's how we ensure that this thing doesn't go back. And I also think, again, coming back to speed, it's really imperative that we think about that and, and, and the speed in which we get people to come back to some sort of normalcy from a psychological standpoint, because as, as crushing of a blow as this has been in the speed, again, of deaths in such a short period of time, the lasting blow from an economic standpoint, a psychology standpoint, um, and I know that stuff seems trivial at the moment because there's lives being lost, but again, there's a reality to humanity life the circle of life whatever you believe in you know and and that has to be prepared to go back to normal in some sort of orderly fashion otherwise people are going to lose it so i'll just reiterate what i said before as far as the governor because that's how our system you know works in, in in the federalism system so the governor has taken actions incrementally through 15 executive orders since this uh, commenced. I believe, as I said before, that getting back, once we get back to the state of normalcy as far as the uh, virus is contained, then I believe 
it's not going to be, you know, shutting off the water and opening up the valve. It's going to be incremental. I believe it's going to be systematic and it's going to be a very logical, reasonable approach through the governor's orders based on the expert uh, information that he receives from his uh, advisors. And I think that's probably the only way it can happen. Um, and I think, I think, you know, I, I give, have a lot of faith in uh, people and our residents uh, specifically that I think each, you know, family, each individual is going to take on uh, once if, if a restaurant's open or establishment's open or your business is open or, or whatever, uh, or the courts are open, uh, village hall, everybody's going to start taking different precautions than they did before this started. And I, I think that's just going to be a natural uh, occurrence. But, I, but, but the initial, to answer your question again, the initial uh, incentive as far as different protocols, regulations, and subsequently legislation perhaps would come from initially the governor and then the legislature of the state. Which, by the way, um, I'm, I rarely ever talk politics, but I must give our governor of New York a ton of credit, man. In oh. my opinion, that guy took the bull by the horns and he, you know, looked beyond parties and politics and really, really led people in a really inspiring fashion in my eyes. Right. So that from that from that perspective is and why I have, I have faith in him. Yeah. That's I why do. I'm saying that, right? Because I he's, I, he's I, won my faith. I'm sure it's I'm sure it's already being planned as far as coming back on a on a on a you know requirement type basis. Right now we're at essential services as far as the uh, uh, village is concerned. So we're doing what we have to do. We have to, uh, like uh, Wednesday, we have a budget meeting that has to be done because the budget is still required by the state. If it wasn't, then we wouldn't be having the meeting. But uh, only essential type meetings, essential services are being supplied right now. And I believe because of his orders, implementing those uh, types of protocols, he'll be into, uh, providing uh, orders that will be implementing uh, new protocols, easing up uh, in, at the appropriate time in an appropriate manner. So before we end this, I want to kind of just go over a couple of things with both of you. You know, what, what do guys like you who are involved in this at such a, you know, personal and upfront level think of comments uh, of a guy like Bill Gates when he says this is a spiritual correction that the world needed? Um, <laughs> you know, where, where, I, I'm curious as to how you view that point of it, um, just, uh, just, just, from, uh, just from a shits and giggles sort of say point of view. <laughs> I never heard him say that. Um, there, oh, yeah, were... I'll, I'll send you the article. No, no, I, I believe you. <laughs> but, but the rabbinical view on this was, you know, there's always that, that indefinable question of why do bad things happen to good people? Right. Why do bad things happen to good communities? You know, it's the middle of Passover, today's Good Friday. Yep. And, and, you know, one of, the funny, one of the funny things was, you know, the irony of, uh, Passover was cancelled because of a plague. Um, you know, the spirituality, I, I drive to work, I'm an essential worker, and I see kids on bicycles in the road. I see people sitting on their front lawns. I see, you know, a change in behavior because they're not watching sports. Uh, yep. I saw that Budweiser, you know, put all of its sports uh, uh, money into 
you know, what will help this economy restart, and that's, you know, the healthcare thing. So, so there's going to be a whole, I suppose, a recentering of our, our core values. And oh, yeah. that in, its, in itself is a good thing, right? As, as my wife, Jackie, the realist says, it doesn't last forever. There is a cultural entropy, right? Uh, you know, you get all excited, you do a whole lot of stuff, and right. then, and then eventually, you know, the dust settles and you go back to your, your, your original level. Um, from my point of view, when you just talk about sort of local or interpersonal behavioral changes, uh, when I'm watching a movie on Netflix, and boy, have I watched a lot of stuff. Uh, on <laughs> but every time a couple kisses and hugs, I say, well, you shouldn't be doing that. So you kind of, <laughs> your whole mindset is don't touch each other. And, and I think that, you know, one thing that the mayor said that I just want to sort of warn a little bit about, and that is that people wearing gloves. Remember that if you don't wear gloves appropriately, they become a surface on which the virus can reside longer <laughs> right. than if you have it in your hands and wash your hands. Yeah. So, so you know, there are people who wear gloves and they go to the supermarket and they're walking around touching everything. All they're doing is is exposing different things to it if you wash your hands frequently you don't have that problem so so um ppes can be a, a plus and a minus unclean masks you know are an issue so so there's a lot we have to learn about about the appropriateness of healthy distancing how we how we do things and people are very uh, are very naive because they just don't know i was standing in line um, at the supermarket and a woman 10 feet away from me said, get away from me. And I said, I, I'm far away from you. And then she stood at the counter and she wanted to look at something. She pulled her mask off with her hands, held the food, <laughs> did not take that food, put it back on the shelf and then put the mask back on her face. And I'm thinking like, you know, so where is the logic in all of that? So wash your hands, keep surfaces clean and maintain healthy listening. And don't sneeze on people. <laughs> that's great <laughs> that is great i'll tell you guys one of the things uh you know to, to shed some positivity i'm really really enjoying is you know as you both know me well i go just like you guys 100 miles an hour you know i i'm building a company i'm uh, very involved with my children and my wife and you know i i i i'm not shy to get up at 5 a.m which i still do by the way every day um, and, you know, get my day going and, and I don't stop till I drop at 10 o'clock at night. Right. Um, this thing has allowed me to read 14 books. It's allowed me to create a whole new avenue of, um, healthy participation with my friends and with my clients through virtual training and getting everybody kind of together and giving them and offering these services for free, by the way. But, you know, to get everybody involved and, and do what I can in the part, which I think is the best preventative avenue to any of this, which is really get, getting your mind in a good place and making sure your body is super healthy and, and, and you have no underlying issues that can be controlled by yourself, right? So in, in that sense, you know, I'm really enjoying 
really diving into this part of the spiritual aspect of life for me in this age. And I just turned 40, you know, a, couple, a month ago. And, uh, you know, it's a new decade. It's a new avenue of manhood, as you both have recently passed that little stage. <laughs> and, you know, so, so you know, it, it, it's really cool. Right, exactly. It's, it's really cool to, to, to really take this in and wake up and be with my wife and my kids all day with no outside influence, by the way. Um, you know, we've really kept the social distancing and it's fascinating to see that connection. And I'm really enjoying this, I must tell you, to a such a high level because I look at this and I say, thank, I hope, and I say, this is never going to happen in my lifetime again. I'm never going to get two, three months home with no outside influence with just my wife and my two children at this age again. And I'm trying to take in every second of it. And, you know, for our listeners, you know, if there's ever a time where you wanted to read books or do some interpersonal work and get into meditation and, you know, really, you know, take on being healthier and really revamping your relationships with your kids, your spouse, your whoever you're around, I really think if you look at this time as something of that sort, you can add that to the mass consciousness and really take the gold out of this dark situation that has occurred for everybody. Oh, yeah. Well said, well said Sam. Yeah, so um, love you guys both. You guys are awesome. I'm so happy that we were able to do this. Um, I, I think this is really powerful. And I, I really, really, um, I, I really think our listeners are going to love what we did here today and take away a ton. You both taught me so much as you do on a regular basis, but about this, this, uh, this piece in particular. And I want to thank you both for doing this. I know you're both super busy at this time and, and really, really involved. And, you know, time is the only commodity we never get back. And I truly appreciate the two of you sharing yours with me. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, doctor. Yeah. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. I really enjoyed being with you guys. I love you, Sam, always. You're the best when guys. This over, when this is over, we'll try to get together, even if it's six feet apart. <laughs> I look hey, forward to it. And, and we deemed the new term now, healthy distancing. Like so that, that, that I read on uh, Rabbi uh, Dovid Zagwi's um, Shabbat newsletter. Two uh, weeks and, I love and it. Was, <laughs> it was titled Words Matter. Yeah, yeah very good. Yeah, I love that. Okay, great. Yeah, so so I've got to give plug for Rabbi. Yeah, great. Um, and uh, yeah, guys, let's keep the healthy distancing and get back to some sort of uh, – healthy lifestyle. And, and, and I, you know, I, both of you make sure you continue to eat well, cause I know you both do and, and, and take care of yourselves and, and exercise and keep that mind fresh and the body moving. Okay. Yeah. Great. Thanks. Thank you, Sam. Same to you. All right, Same gentlemen. You, Talk soon. Bye -bye. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye.